Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 4 At Flourish and Blots. Life at the borough was as different as possible from life on Privet Drive. The Dursleys liked everything neat and ordered. The Weasley's house burst with the strange and unexpected. Harry got a shock the first time he looked in the mirror over the kitchen mantelpiece and it shouted, Tuck your shirt in, Scruffy. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, you and Julie sounded like you had such a great conversation last week. We missed you, but... I missed you. Jolie did some lovely shout-outs to you. She kept talking about Dragon Ball Z, and I was like, I don't know what that is. I heard that, and I am even more regretful that I could not be there to receive all the Dragon Ball Z love. So this week, Vanessa, we are reading through the theme of patience, and you have a story to tell us about patience. Can we hear it? Yeah. Matt, when I was six years old, I was very excited about my seventh birthday party. We were planning it. It was going to be a bowling birthday party. And like a month before the party, my mom took me shopping for my birthday outfit. And it was amazing. It was a matching t-shirt and shorts set. And it was red and it had white sponge hearts on it. Oh, it was so good. I've also never looked better in my life. I had no front teeth. I was just like fully glorious. I was very excited to wear this outfit. And my mom was like, sweetie, you shouldn't wear it before your birthday party. And she didn't say this next part, but implied in it was you're a sloppy kid and you're going to like stain it or rip it and you will be sad that you can't wear it at your birthday party. 
And so I was very frustrated and very sad that I couldn't wear my beautiful outfit. It was the end of the school year. I thought it would be like great to go out looking awesome. My mom was like, no, you cannot wear it till your party. So what I did was I laid the outfit out in my bedroom as like a shrine to my excitement. And because of that, it was just painful. Every morning I got ready for school and I couldn't put on my outfit. But I'm wondering if that is then patience, if what I was actually doing by keeping the outfit out was forcing myself to actually confront how awesome the day would be when I got to put on the outfit and be patient with that. Or would it have been more patient of me to just like put the outfit in the closet and try to forget about it? That's the question I'm bringing today is, is patience ignored really patient or do you have to be frustrated in order for it to be, quote unquote, like true patience? That's a great question. To begin, though, I think I would like to say there aren't sloppy kids. They're just kids, right? Like you were, <laughs> you were not a sloppy kid. You were a kid and kids, kids get messy. So yeah. that's OK. The root word for patience actually comes from the same as the root word for suffering. So there is the sense of not having what you want means to suffer. But it can also mean suffer in the kind of the classic sense, which is just to endure. Right. It doesn't have to be a dramatic kind of suffering, right? I think total ignorance would not be patience, right? If, if you're so oblivious to the thing that you desire or that you need or want that you don't even want it anymore. Or like if my mom had bought it without me and gave it to me the morning of my party. That's not patience. Right. Right. However, if you knew that there was a dress somewhere that you hadn't seen and you really wanted to see what it was, right, there has to be some an unsatisfied want, unsatisfied desire. And once there is one, then it's just all management strategy, as you said. It seems like your management strategy was <laughs> a to, bad one. Uh, <laughs> was to, to make it as difficult po as possible for yourself. <laughs> I do feel like, as you know, Matt, I'm not someone who believes that suffering pays off, but there was something so satisfying about the day of my party actually finally being able to put it on and having endured that and being like, look, I'm capable of keeping things nice. It felt really good. So this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because patience, if patience is this kind of unsatisfied want or unsatisfied desire, like you're usually doing that in the interest of something else, mm -hmm. something else that you want more that you can't have right now, mm. right? So implied in the idea of patience is also this idea of competing desires, competing wants, right? And that might be something that we can really see going on in the Harry Potter books and in this chapter maybe as well. Yeah. So this is great. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, Matt, in the spirit of impatience, are you ready to recap? Yes. No, but okay. Okay. <laughs> On your mark, get set, go. So uh, Harry's at the borough, and uh, Mrs. Weasley's really nice, and they get a letter from Hermione, and Hermione says, let's go meet at Diagon Diagon Alley, and they do meet at Diagon Alley, and they use flu powder, but so Harry doesn't go to Diagon Alley. He goes to Nocturnally, and then he he sees Draco and Lucius, and there's some uh, dire dealings going on, and then he finally gets out, and Hagrid rescues him from a person with fingernails on a tray, and then they go to Gringotts, and they, there's a lot of money, and then they go to Flourish and Blots, and uh, the, the, the dark arts teacher is there, and he's a jerk. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You did great for the first 25 seconds. I was actually impatient to compliment you. 
And then you sort then of biffed I've, the end, and I was like, oh, I don't have to compliment Because I forgot, I, like, this is what happens when I do it, right? I forgot the, the dark arts teacher's name because I get... Lockhart. Right, for Gilderoy Lockhart. I know now because the 30-second recap is over. But from the first second of my first 30-second recap, the words fly out of my head, which is why I said privet whatever the street it is. <laughs> right? I can't... Privet lane. Drive. Drive? It's drive. Okay, count okay. me in, and I'm going to start at the end where you stopped. Great. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So Gilderoy Lockhart is like, you have to buy all my books. And so they all go to Flourish and Blotts to buy all the books, and it's going to be very expensive. And Lockhart is like, oh my God, Harry Potter, together, we can be in the newspaper. And Harry's like, no, thank you. And Lucius and Draco are there. And Draco's making really disparaging comments like, oh, my God, you're going to have to bankrupt your whole family in order to buy all these really expensive books. And Lockhart gives Harry a set of books and Harry gives them to Ginny. And then Ron and Ginny and Draco start fighting. And then um, Arthur punches Lucius and Hagrid is like, everybody stop enough. Good job. That was great. I mean, thanks to you. I only had to do the last three pages of the chapter. So teamwork. So, Matt. The chapter starts with, like, everybody being so happy at the borough. The borough is just this, like, wonderful place full of joy and interest and conversation. But the place where I really saw patients come in was just within, like, the second page where George says, you know, after they got the list of books, that lot won't come cheap. Lockhart's books are really expensive. And... I didn't even know this etymology that like patience is about longing for things, but it just occurred to me that like being poor is a constant state of patience, which I feel like is something that I learned most acutely in Lauren Sandler's book, This Is All I Got, where she talks about just like the rigors and boredom of poverty that you have to stand in line in order to get your food stamps and then go to another line, right? There's just this like complete monotony to having to advocate for yourself in the United States if you live in poverty. And this we're seeing, you know, a much less dangerous version of it. There's plenty of food to eat at the borough. There's a stable house. But, right, like constantly having this feeling of like we have to do without is a form of patience, right? I mean, I think it absolutely is, I mean, especially if we think about patience as like sort of endurance, right? Having to engage with suffering over a extended period of time. I think it is. I think the thing that's tricky about calling it patience is that patience seems to imply some kind of conclusion, right? Where the wait will be over, or like you do it for the sake of something else, right? Like we were saying before, there's competing interests. To suffer patiently in poverty might give the implication that like, that there's a good outcome that you're earning through that patience, which is not at all clear and actually is not borne out by the facts in the way poverty is kind of persistent and cyclical in, in, in human lives, right? And so I think there is a way in which patience can be understood that way, but also, especially when we think about like, you know, people say patience is a virtue. What we don't want to do, we don't want to valorize or, or make virtuous the, the suffering of the poor and just promise them, as frankly, the Christian tradition often has, yeah. and my tradition often has, just promise them like, oh, there will be some reward for you later as long as you just suffer patiently now. When maybe the thing to do is to say, like, I'm tired of waiting and it's not clear to me that there is a reward and that my patience isn't going to earn anything. <laughs> right. So so let's fix things. Which is why I think that Fred and George have the reaction that they do. Right. George is the one in this moment who is lamenting that they have to be patient. He's the one who's saying, 
I'm so sorry, mom. Like, this is going to be expensive. And then he's also really impatient for his own success. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about at the opening of the chapter when life at the brewery was being described was just sort of how the general disorder and unpredictability of the borough demand some patience, right? Like everything at the Dursley's house is super predictable. Also demands patience because super cruel, right? <laughs> but the borough is a very active household. There are a lot of people with a lot of needs. There are things going on all the time, right? Like you're being disrupted and interrupted all the time. It could demand some patience in one of the ways we think about patience. Like you got to be patient with your family because they're living in the same house with you, patient with roommates or whatever. Harry just delights in it. I mean, it's his, it seems like his favorite thing. Like these inconveniences are joys and blessings to him. Like what he wants is nothing more than a house full of people who are inconveniencing him and interrupting him because that just is another sign that there are people who love him around him, right? And so like it pushes back against the idea that, that, Patience is suffering because I think you should and could still call what Harry's accommodating all the disruptions of life at the borough as a form of patience, but he is not suffering, I don't think. I think it's just pure joy for him because of what it indicates to him that he is in this place where there are a lot of loving people living their lives with him in it. Yeah. I mean, the question is, right, whether or not it's patience, it again talks about like the order of your priorities, right? He'd rather be hanging out with Fred and George and interrupted than asleep. And he'd rather have Ginny be awkward around him in like very stressful, uncomfortable ways than not be at the burrow. Yeah. So this is really clarifying then, like with respect to your story, because patience is required when the desires are competing really closely, Mm -hmm. right? We can imagine a different outfit, a different shirt, short, complete set. Or maybe a different version of you or you at a different age where, of course, you would like to wear the dress today, but your desire to wear it on your birthday or to do what your mom says or whatever so far outweighs the desire to wear it today that it's actually easy to put it in the cupboard and not wear it for a month, right? Right. So that's not really patience, right? It's when they're really close. Yeah. When, like, I actually do really want to wear it today and only slightly more want to save it. Right. That's when it gets hard. Yeah. In order for it to be patience, it has to be really competing Things, which I think brings us to Ginny, who's also in these first two pages, because she has very closely competing desires. <laughs> the desire yeah. to be noticed by Harry and loved by Harry and the desire to be invisible to Harry. <laughs> and yep. like, it seems as though her desire to be invisible is slightly winning out at the beginning of this chapter. Right. She is like putting her elbow in the butter. She's like doing all these embarrassing things. And she's like, ah, I'd rather be invisible. But by the end of the chapter, this like third competing thing comes in, which is the desire to not see Harry mocked by the Malfoys. And so she entirely inserts herself and is willing to forego this invisibility in order to protect him. I think that's a great example. And I think that if we start thinking about patients through this kind of framework of closely competing desires, it explains so much of what's going on in this chapter. I mean, that Arthur Weasley is both responsible for policing the misuse of muggle artifacts, and he wants to do well at that job and wants to keep his job, but also really loves misusing muggle (laughs) artifacts, right? Like, I'm sure that the Weasleys do not want to get into a fight in public but also kind of do want to get to a fight in public. And even like Draco, right? Like kind of his whining about wanting the broom because why does Harry get to 
special permission to play Quidditch and other people don't get... I mean, there are, there are closely competing desires <laughs> all throughout many of the characters in this chapter. If that's what patience is, it's like reckoning with closely competing desires. That's just like a, a constant part of everybody's experience. Right? Yeah. And it, it's patience when you have the bigger desire and put it on the back burner because you think that the thing you desire a little bit less is more virtuous, right? Like I really wanted to wear the outfit and that's actually the thing I desired more. So it's only patience when you are prioritizing the thing that you desire a little bit less. I mean, the other way we could put it is everyone always does what they want most. (laughs) Sure. Right? But everyone doesn't always do what they want to want most. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. Well, so can we talk about a moment of impatience that I'm not totally sure fits into our our new definition, which I'm obsessed with? Lucius Malfoy is a very quintessential impatient parent. I feel like part Mm -hmm. of being a loved one is listening to someone obsess about something many times, right? And Draco is like, uh, Harry Potter, Hermione only does better in school because, right? And he seems to be going on and on about this, like, complaint all summer. And Lucius, like, maybe we catch Lucius at the end of a summer of complete patience and, like, listening to Draco. But that doesn't seem to be the impression. And what seems to be happening is that Lucius is like, I have no patience for this, Draco. You are being whiny. And he's being an impatient parent. That doesn't seem to be about competing desires. And so is it not about impatience? Is it actually about cruelty or lack of care? I think it can still be about competing desires. It's just that the desires are cruel or unkind, right? Sure. Like, I desire to be a good parent. I also desire not to talk to this kid right now, right? Like, that will lead you to be impatient if you follow the wrong desire. I'm not even sure that Lucius desires to be a good father. I guess if that's the case, impatience could also indicate what a person from the outside might suggest ought to be a person's desires, but actually aren't desires. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we can describe Lucius as impatient because we think he ought to want to be a good parent, but maybe he has no concern to be a good parent and is just treating his child with cruelty, which we read as impatience because we presume that dads would or should want to be good dads. I mean, the other thing is that the way that we've been talking about patience and impatience has been about choicefulness, right? Like choosing every day to not put on the outfit was a patient choice, but sometimes it feels like it isn't a choice, right? Impatience is sometimes just about like losing the capacity to choose. Yeah, that's fair too. I mean, it goes back to another comment about like poverty and like falsely or superficially valorizing patience as a virtue of those who have not, right? Because the way we've been framing it as competing desires does imply that someone has some choice to fulfill one's desires. And Maybe it's a usefulness in thinking about patience only as a virtue when there is agency. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it's not a virtue if you don't have agency, because then then you are just having suffering imposed upon you rather than you embracing it for the sake of some greater good that you've chosen. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Matt, we meet Lockhart in this chapter, a highly yeah. problematic figure. He sends this book list that like every student has to buy every book that he has written. I mean, they don't know he's the teacher yet, but so it just becomes more problematic as we meet him. And then he is so impatient to be in the spotlight that he is willing to exploit a child who at this point he should be seeing as a student, Harry, in order to get into the spotlight. And he is willing to exploit violence and borderline encourage that violence in Flourish and Blots in order to get into the newspaper. And that impatience seems, I mean, I guess it does seem to be about suffering in that like, He's suffering whenever he's not in the spotlight because his, like, ego and sense of self is entirely wrapped up in public praise. But it it is a really destructive form of impatience where, like, he will knock people down and take advantage of them in order to get what he wants. Yeah. He desires to be perceived as a heroic wizard who is a skilled master of combating the dark arts. And he does also desires not to ever get into any kind of skirmishes with the dark arts, right? So, like, his desire to be perceived as heroic or as brave or as fearless or as skilled competes with his desire to not actually be challenged in those ways, right? And so this leads to him having to, to do a lot of work to create this perception while not actually doing the real work of of engaging in battle in the dark arts. I mean, that read, I think, is 100% accurate. And I think that it just speaks to the irrationality of human beings because it sounds like more work to pull off this fraud than it would to just, like, go yep. and do one big <laughs> adventure and then, like, be <laughs> able to talk about it, right? Like, it, yeah. it would be six months of authenticity, like, to take advantage for the rest of his life. 
Let me ask you a question about something else in this chapter. You and I are both U.S. North Americans, Vanessa. And I hope that some of our readers of Harry Potter and listeners from around the world will, like, help us out with this a little bit or comment or, like, send us voicemails or whatever. Because one thing that I sometimes suspect that I am missing as a U.S. American in reading these books is the way that class operates. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that class is not a super important category in American life and culture. It absolutely is. But it functions differently in the U.K., I know, than it functions here. And especially when I read interactions between the Weasleys and the Malfoys, or between Harry and the Malfoys, or the Grangers and the Malfoys, like how class is complicating those encounters is something that's harder for me to follow. For me, as a U.S. American, like I see a really strong and useful and helpful metaphor, as we've spoken about on this podcast in the past, for thinking about white supremacy and anti-Black racism, or just kind of you know, white supremacist racism in general through these novels. And so when when Lucius talks about the bad blood of certain families or when he talks about the Grangers of having bad blood, what I immediately hear is the way that blood and lineage and heritage is used in the racist formulation out of my culture. But I think in the UK, this is my suspicion, and I'm actually curious about this. I think that's also deeply tied to the way class is structured because it's not just about ethnicity. I think in the UK, it's also literally about sort of a sense of family and who belongs to which family name and which family tradition or crest or whatever, right? And so this isn't really a question. I'm just, I want to learn more about this because I also think that there is a clue in this about the way that we in the West talk about blood that links classism to racism in a really important way that I think this book might actually help us understand. Yeah. The only component I want to add to that from a U.S. American point of view is that I think that we here tend to prioritize wealth. Whoever the wealthiest person in the room is sort of has the most power and people show the most deference to them. And like they do, like not to just try to throw in our theme word here, but they do get a disproportionate amount of patience from society because of their wealth. Whereas my understanding from like romance novels (laughs) is that that's not necessarily true in other cultures, right? That there is a class and birth and backwards looking family lineage component. And like the person with more power in the room is probably the person with like this, the purest bloodline, a completely arbitrary thing that is like never actually achieved than the person wealthiest in the room. And actually the wealthiest person in the room might be looked down upon as nouveau riche or uncouth or having worked and right. So these things are so different culturally. Yeah. And this is what I mean, right? This is why, even though the Weasels are poor, Malfoy can say, why are you hanging out with the Grangers? Right? Because It has little to do with wealth in that case. It has to do with purity of blood, which I, as a U.S. American, read as a racialized kind of comment. But I think in other cultures could be read as both racialized and a class comment. That's not to say that race isn't classed in the United States as well. It obviously is, right? But just that because we're reading these as metaphors rather than as a direct kind of uh, description of things, the metaphor becomes useful to help us interrogate a number of categories, right? Or especially, and this is what's really interesting here for me as a reader, especially where and how those categories overlap. Yeah. Because blood isn't a real thing. Like, my kids don't actually have my blood in them. They have their own blood, right? (laughs) Right. But it has become this, it has become in discourse, in racist and classist discourse, a way to, to describe both of those 
kind of structural forms of oppression. And that's just really interesting to me, that blood is really useful in both those systemic unjust schemes, that, that this, this word, this language is, is useful in both. And the, this book shows maybe how and why that is, which is cool. Yeah. And it's interesting who, who it is that wants to close ranks and who doesn't, who wants to keep them more porous all the time. And the Weasleys are a family who like always wants those lines to be fuzzy. Yeah. And and also like the the corrective to that kind of blood language or kinship based upon a particular understanding of blood ties, the book frustrates that because Harry has very few blood ties and the ones he has are are violent and terrible for him. But he is at home in the borough. He is treated as like a child and loved as one of their own because he is one of their own, whether or not he has actual genetic or blood, quote unquote, blood ties to them. And of course, this is all caught up in the way that Voldemort thinks about his own blood ties to Salazar Slytherin and so forth later on in the series, right? But what we find at the end of the series is that what saves everybody is people being willing to work across those family ties together and to establish relationships of kinship that are based upon commitment, love, goodness, all the things that should be the virtues around which we base our relationships rather than like the metaphorical and kind of conceptual tools that that tend to instantiate and reify systems of violence like blood. Yeah, Matt, I'm so grateful that you brought this up. And I'm also really interested to hear from our listeners about what they think. So voicemails, emails, please teach us. So, Vanessa, our spiritual practice this week is Lectio Divina. I wonder if you might pick a line from the chapter for us to consider through the practice of Lectio Divina. A short, irritable-looking man was dancing around taking photographs with a large black camera that emitted puffs of purple smoke with every blinding flash. Okay, Vanessa, so the first step in our Lectio practice is to talk about what is literally going on in the chapter. So why don't you help us locate this sentence in the chapter? So we are at the book signing at Flourish and Blots. Hermione is really excited that she can meet Gilderoy Lockhart because he's there signing copies of Magical Me. And apparently there is a photographer there. And this photographer is short and irritable looking. And he's taking a lot of photographs. And it's also how we find out that Photographs in the wizarding world, um, when taken, emit puffs of purple smoke and have blinding flashes. That's great. Now, the second step is my favorite in Lectio Divina. The second step is when we think of what other stories this line reminds us of. So, Vanessa, can you think of any any stories from your own reading or in our culture that that this passage reminds you of? I mean, short, irritable-looking men remind me of, like, trolls who you have to fight in order to cross bridges that's only the first part of the sentence right but some sort of like who's trying to pass my bridge where do you even hear that that's a thing right i didn't make that up yeah it's in fairy tales billy goats bruff the three billy goats gruff yeah there it is so it reminds me of that okay it also reminds me of the Jude Law character in a movie that I really love called Road to Perdition. And he has just one of these big 
black, you know, cameras, these large black cameras that emit smoke and like a bright puff of light. And he like stages photos with murder victims. So it's much more sinister. But just like the incredible artistry and I guess like how complicated cameras are, right? We're going to see cameras later in this book with with Colin Creevy become this like paparazzi thing. And I feel like that is the way that they are mostly thought of in the books. And yet photographs are really beautiful and like make Harry feel loved when people show him photographs. And so the, the sort of difference of like how grotesque cameras can feel, but how beautiful the actual photographs can feel. Yeah, that's really good. I like that tension between what photographs are and do is really, that's really good. I had a lot of trouble with this step the first time we went through Lectio Divina. And I, you told me, Vanessa, it was because I was trying too hard, trying to draw too strong a line of connection. And so I'm going to go, I'm just going loose. I'm being, I'm just, I'm just keeping loose and I'm going to go for it. Here's what I'm feeling. The 1960 film La Dolce Vita. Oh, yeah. By, by Fellini. Oh, it starts with a, with a paparazzi. It actually coins the term paparazzi. And so like the, the idea of this kind of the, the paparazzi photographer, which you just, I mean, that was a word that you just used in your description. That's what I'm thinking. La Dolce Vita. Yeah. Ah, what a great movie. Yeah. So Vanessa, we just spoke about what this reminds us of in the larger culture. Now for our third step, we're going to talk about what this reminds us of in our own lives. I mean, it just reminds me of like, I hated school picture day. It was like a day in the middle of the year where you had to look nice at school. And I was a kid, as I've talked about previously, I like played rough at recess. You know, my hair got out of its nice ponytail by the end of the day because I was like playing basketball and handball at recess. And I was like actively painting during art time. And so it was like this day that you had to like be pristine and I hated it. But I will say I do like looking at my old school photos now that I'm almost 40. I was adorable. (laughs) There is something nice about it, right? Like watching yourself age year by year in sort of the same position and seeing how fashion changes and how you changed and glasses one year and a retainer the next. And as much as it was miserable during it, there is something really endearing about it now that I'm older. What about you? Uh, So today was my kid's first day of school in their new school district in this new school year. And we have a tradition of taking photos on the first day of school. You know, when I was growing up so long ago, there was (laughs) film and cameras. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe my folks would think to bring out the camera on the first day of school to take a picture. Like my very first day of kindergarten, that definitely happened. I'm not sure that happened any day after that. (laughs) And even if it did, even if it did, I didn't see the photo immediately, like the way my kids did this morning. And so there's a way in which like everything has become more documented, like, and photos have become... To kind of call back to the tension you were describing before, how photos just become part of our lives in a much more like invasive and present way than they ever were before. And so part of me worries about that a little bit. But on the other hand, like it's just like this really wonderful ritual and and that we have gotten into. And it was great to pick it up again. And actually, I think lessen some anxiety because even though we're in a new place and everything, like we're taking the same shot, we're standing together in the same place. All the kids know the order. It's like the three kids, then the three kids with mom, then the three kids with dad, then each kid by themselves, then each kid with mom, and each kid with dad, right? Like even that ritual is kind of comforting. And so what you, I think, really intelligently described a moment ago about the tension between photography, both as sort of like an invasion or a burden, but also as like this source of comfort. Like I feel that in my own life today just because my kids are at the first day of school and I'm 
distracted and thinking about them as we record. So Vanessa, our last step is what are we called to do? What is this line or our conversation around it? What is it calling us to do? The thing that is calling me to do is to be less of a jerk when my mom wants to take pictures of my brothers and I. I'm like, we're adults now. Like, who cares? She's very paparazzi-ish, and I just get very resistant to it. I'm like, you're taking us out of the moment in order to take a picture. And, like, we're just, like, middle-aged, graying people. But, like, A, it gives her pleasure, and B, I feel like we have no idea how we're going to feel about these photos, like, in 30 years. And so, like many of our Lectia's Divinas, it calls me to be less of a jerk. More patient, maybe? A little more patient. Yes, a little more patient with my mother. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case, and I want to do the same in, in my own life. But I think I also want to, in my own life, recall the tension here, right? Because because this is a short, irritable-looking irritable man who's dancing around and distracting everybody from what's actually going on, or at least distracting the reader and distracting Harry and others. And, like, you know, I really love these photos, but sometimes, you know, when we feel the the compulsion to pick up the phone and take a photo— just to kind of be in the moment like this today as my youngest Danny was walking into the school, part of me wanted to take out the phone and take a video, right? But I put it back in my pocket because what I actually wanted to do, competing desires, right? I wanted to give him a hug and and actually just kind of be bodily and material present to him. I wanted his his hand to touch my hand and I wanted his body to touch my body. Yeah, and so the photos are great and we got some photos, but but to remind myself that to to be in the moment as well and not let the photos dance around and emit blinding flashes of purple smoke when I might just be giving somebody a hug. Hmm. Thanks so much for leading such a beautiful Lectio Divina. That was so fun. Thanks for selecting such a rich and rewarding sentence. Matt, this week's voicemail is from Oliver. Hi to everyone at the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Oliver and I'm a listener from Montreal. Um, you had a recent episode with Harry at King's Cross Station, and it really got me thinking. So if Molly wasn't there to save the day, what would have happened? And I feel like this is an instance of the failed pedagogy at Hogwarts, which is something I love thinking about because I am a teacher too. Um, so I was wondering, Hagrid is the patron saint of transitions, right? So why couldn't he be there at the head of a team of people to orient the students. So we could have Hogwarts alumni at the station and Hagrid leading everybody, directing young students to the train and like helping people transition to Hogwarts. It could totally be a thing, right? Alumni as volunteers. I'm sure there are plenty of former students who would love to do that. So... Yeah, I think Hagrid could be a really good role model here and help out all the young, confused first years. I would love to know what you think of this idea. And also, I just want to say I love your podcast. You all do wonderful work. And Matt, it's so nice to hear your voice and get to know you. All right. Well, thank you from Montreal. And um, I'll see you guys around. Bye. Oliver, thank you so much for this voicemail. I think you are 100% right. There absolutely should be a system in place, and it absolutely depends upon skilled teachers like yourself to notice those things. Because I have to tell you, I just spoke about my kids starting school for the first time, and by and large, we've been really pleased with the support from Cambridge Public Schools. 
But being outside the system, it's hard to know what parts of the system are impenetrably dense or unrecognizable to an outsider, right? So thank you for saying this. I think it's true. The system that they have in place at King's Cross is not meant to accommodate people like Harry who do not have loving parents bringing them to the platform. But there are students like Harry all the time who do not have that kind of loving support and for whom we need to be this loving support. Uh, And I'm so glad that you are that for your students, Oliver. The other thing I want to say, Oliver, that I love about what your suggestion is, I think it is a brilliant teacherly suggestion, is that, yes, it would be great for the most vulnerable kids, but it would also be just great for everyone. It would be great for the alumni. It would be great for all of the other students. And it being great for the most vulnerable kids is enough of a reason. But I just like this is a great idea across the board. Thank you, Oliver. Uh, Thank you, Oliver. Great voicemail. Now is the time in our episode when we remember those in our community who have been lost to COVID. Sugi, 36. Luke Asikoye, a Kenyan-American international health worker. Tomasa Medina Khan, 68. Matriarch and Sower of Seeds. Siabonga, Africa, in his 30s, a gentle-hearted geek and a sharp dresser. And Ivan Souza, 63, father, husband, and generous friend. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I want to bless Ginny in this chapter. I want to bless her for starting this fight. I just love it. She's so shy in this. And I, it's hard to believe, but I was a very shy child at this age also. And I think that I would have watched one of my friends be bullied because I would have prioritized not getting involved over like justice seeking. And she is just like, I don't care that I'm shy. I don't care that I'm risking embarrassing myself. He didn't even want that attention. Like she just inserts herself and we are seeing her like Gryffindorness come out. We're seeing her awesomeness come out. And I just love Ginny. Blessing for Ginny. And for just all courageous people out there who insert themselves into difficult moments. What about you, Matt? I'm going to bless Draco today. I've blessed Draco in the past. Maybe it's because my son has a soft spot for Draco. I have a soft spot for him. But I got to be honest, I don't like him. I don't like him in this chapter. I don't like him in general. But he's a 12-year-old boy whose dad is just not nice to him. And I feel like any 12-year-old whose guardians are the ones who are supposed to be loving and protecting them are not loving and protecting them. Any of them deserve a blessing. So Draco gets one. Amen. So Matt, 
Our, next week, we're reading Chapter 5, The Whomping Willow, and Leslie and Susie both recommended the theme of anxiety. So we are going to do that theme. Sounds great. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have new Patreon perks, so you can start listening to this podcast ad-free if you'd like. And we have a new pin on Patreon, Cho Chang, the patron saint of criers. You can learn more at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. We are a Not Sorry Production, a feminist production company. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. And our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bolt. And we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Oliver for their amazing voicemail this week. Laura Glass, Emma Smith, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk to you next week. you probably have a story about anxiety i'm gonna tell a story about when i had to do a 30 second recap <laughs> so it'll be a short story <laughs> it'll be a short story no it won't i won't be able to keep it to 30 seconds <laughs> that's that's true that's right and i'll forget a bunch of details and that will make me anxious this week's episode of harry potter and the sacred text is brought to you by redfin let's say for some reason you can't get back to grim old place so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details